Hey everyone, welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. I'm really excited about this next series that we're going to start. Maggie is going to tell us all about the Enneagram. Um, you may have heard the Enneagram. Um, it has become a very popular thing these days, especially in the Christian circles. Uh, so Maggie is going to talk to us over the next several episodes about the history of the Enneagram. Uh, we're going to talk about all the different uh, numbers of the Enneagram. There are nine uh, subtypes within the Enneagram. And then we're going to talk about what, what all that means for us as uh, Christians and, and spiritual growth. So I'm really excited to get started with this and learn a lot about the Enneagram from uh, my resident expert, Maggie Schlosser. So take it away, Maggie. Chris, that is so kind of you. One thing that I was not shy about when we were in school together was that I am obsessed with the Enneagram. I first came across it with a friend of mine who's a pastor at the time in Memphis, but now they're in Kansas City. And he and his wife just kind of told me a little bit about the Enneagram and how it's helped them. And I'd heard about it. It was kind of like the sexy personality test um, of the decade, I guess, or this uh, era. And uh, so he gave me a book. Um, it's called The Road Back to You by Ian Morgan Cron and Suzanne Stabile. And a, a friend of mine and I sat down over lunch one day and started to read through it. And he was kind of like, oh, this is okay, whatever. And I just did a deep dive into it. And I've been obsessed with it for about four years now. Um, I have done trainings. Um, I do a lot of Enneagram work with directees. And um, I'm actually going to get... Uh, I don't know if I want to say like I'm trained or I'm going to get trained because I'm going to get trained. I'm going <laughs> to trained like I'm going to get like the official certification, but um, I don't know. Well, it'll be on my website if they ever go. <coughs> anyway, so I've been studying the Enneagram for about four years now and I'm totally obsessed with it. It has changed my life and um, and it's been really helpful with uh, um, in spiritual direction with directees and uh, fun fact. I met my spiritual director at an Enneagram training. So when I met her, she was part of the faculty that was helping out with this training that came into my work. And, um, and she and I hit it off and I was like, will you please be my spiritual director? And so um, the Enneagram is like in my blood, I swear. Um, Chris, what, what are your thoughts? How do you feel? What do you know about the Enneagram? Well, it's kind of interesting, and I, I was wondering, I was going to ask you first, uh, when you had first received that book from your friend, um, had you heard of the Enneagram prior to that, or was that your first introduction? Um, I had kind of heard about it um, from uh, actually someone that I used to work with. Uh, she said it changed her life, and I had kind of just added it to my list of things to, to look into later. And then in my last job, our team would do a different personality assessment every month. So we added the Enneagram as one of these ones to kind of dig into. And I started, you know, reading about it and I was like, I want to teach you guys the Enneagram. So that was my first like training, you know, in air quotes of a, um, I'd only known about the Enneagram for like a month. And here I am like training people on it and learning about it. And, um, and I've just done a deep dive, deep, deep, deep dive on the Enneagram, um, ever since. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, I had, I definitely had heard the word, uh, brandied about in, in, you know, the different church circles that I was a part of, uh, I, def I definitely did not know anything about it. Um, 
when I first when I first read that that I read the same book you read at first, um, and it was actually part of our spiritual direction training program. So that was really the only uh, the first introduction I had to the Enneagram. But for at least a couple of years before that, I had heard about it, but I, I don't know. I, I guess it was because um, I had. I had known about Myers-Briggs for many years and I kind of got tired of hearing all about Myers-Briggs. And when I first heard about the Enneagram, I kind of did a big eye roll and thought, Oh no, not another one, (laughs) another personality test. And so I really resisted learning about it for as long as I could until it became a requirement to read for our program, of course. But um, once I learned about it, I realized, Okay, so this is not just another personality test. There's there's a lot more to it. It goes a lot deeper, I think, than um, than Myers Briggs, for you know, for example, as far as personality test goes. But it, it what I love about it is that it is, um, you know, it does it does talk about personality. It does explain things about personality, but it it goes much deeper and tells about like root fears and and root, um, you know, things that you do um, based on your 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 deepest self and um, and also gives you a path to transformation to become a better version of yourself. So that's what I really enjoy about it. Yeah, I would say that that is the biggest difference between that I have found between the Enneagram and a lot of these other personality assessments that are out there. One, that a lot of them are based on behavior. And so you take a test based on your behavior and what you do, but none of them really look at the deeper root of what is happening. And I love that the Enneagram starts with motivation and root fears. And, um, and then also you said that it goes, it gives you a true path to transformation. We, we had a speaker come in and talk to our class. And uh, um, she said that if you don't use the Enneagram as a tool for transformation, you have completely missed the whole point of the Enneagram. And I have used that. I have said that so many times, and I think that is so true. There, true, there really was a path for growth with the Enneagram. The deeper you go into it, the more I learn about how I can become my true self and not put up this mask that I wear, you know, that has these motivations and whatnot. And and we'll we'll get into all that, but um, but that is something that I've loved about the Enneagram. And that the idea about being a path to transformation is it's it's so good because you you hear too often these days people who have you know they've learned just enough about the enneagram to be dangerous. Yeah. They say, oh, you know, I'm I'm just I'm that way because I'm a seven, or you know whatever the fill in the blank. Um, you know, I'm I avoid conflict because I'm a nine, and I am a nine, and I do like to avoid conflict. But I can't use that as a crutch. You know, I have to find what is what what does this mean about me and my deepest fear, and how can I overcome that and become a better person? That's so good. One image that I like to use that kind of speaks to that is a lot of personality tests. Kind of, you take the test and it says, "Here are your results," and it's kind of like, "Here's your box. Now go live in it." You know, mm-hmm. this is this is the way you are. And the Enneagram says, all right, here's the box that you've been living in. Let's break that open and let's really live outside the box in a really true and authentic and healthy way. And so uh, that using that like, oh, I'm a peacemaker on the Enneagram. Therefore, I'm 
I avoid conflict at all costs. That's not an excuse. That is an awareness about yourself that you now get to, not have to, but you get to overcome. That's not an excuse. It's an awareness about yourself that you can work toward uh, becoming, again, the most authentic, healthy, redeemed part of who you are. That's wonderful. Well, let's dive in. Let's learn about all the different parts of the Enneagram. All right. Well, let's start with a little bit of history. So everything that I am going to share has been compiled over, I don't even know how many podcasts and books and uh, um, trainings that I've been to. So I'm just kind of going to compile it all and just, it's going to be a little bit of information overload, but that's the beauty of podcasts is you can go back and listen to it and slow it down and speed it up and, and whatever you would like to do as many times as you want. So they are not sure how old the Enneagram is. No one really knows its origin. Um, it could be as old as 4,000 years. It could be as old as 8,000 years. They're not totally sure. But there was one rule about the Enneagram that did carry for all of the millennia. Um, and that is that it was only to be passed on to the next generation through an oral tradition. So it was only spoken about and you were never allowed to write it down. Um, but then in the 1970s, there was someone that wrote a book and it was the first book on the Enneagram. And that's kind of when it became more popular in culture and started to gain steam. But they broke the uh, the rule that you are not allowed to break um, by writing this stuff down. And then after that, then more people wrote more books. And then now it's really popular in the 21st century, like super duper popular. Um, and I will say what's cool about it, and this is very similar to like any other personality assessment that you might take. Um, it is recognized in some fashion across all different ages and centuries and cultures and races and genders. So it, it isn't just mostly true for Americans in the 21st century. It really is. Uh, it really holds true th over time throughout the world um, in all different cultures and all of that. So, which I think is really special, but I also would say that's probably true about a lot of personality assessments as well. But the whole idea behind the Enneagram is that we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. The Enneagram isn't going to tell you who you are, but it is going to tell you a little bit about your coping mechanisms and how you want other people to perceive you. Uh, we like to call this our false self. I would describe the false self as the mask that you've been wearing to help you get through life. That is what I meant by the Enneagram says, here's the box that you've been living in. So that is your false self. So the Enneagram is not necessarily a feel-good test. It tells you what's the worst about you, and but it also tells you what could be the best about you. So that is part of that transformation, that road toward growth. Like Chris said, this is not to be used as an excuse as to why you are the way you are, but it helps you identify who you can be, and then you can begin on that path toward overcoming that false self and really grow into who you are created to be in your healthiest and strongest and best self. So it can give you a little bit of insight into your personality strengths and weaknesses. But again, the idea is helping you open that door on the pathway to becoming your best self. We mentioned that, you know, being an Enneagram 7 or a 9 or a peacemaker or any of that, but there are nine personality profiles that come out of the Enneagram. Ennea means nine, gram means pointed figure. So there's nine points, nine numbers. 
We identify them one through nine. There is no number that is better than another. These aren't stages. You don't flow from number one through number nine. That is not the path of growth, but the path is moving from an unhealthy self in your number to a healthy self in your number. And the Enneagram helps us understand better how we see the world, how we live in the world, how we have coped in living with the world, and how we kind of take in information as we go through life. There's a lot of different ideas about how you get to be the number that you are. Some people say that you are born with that number and there's no changing it. Other people say that your life circumstances will kind of hone your number so that you kind of are living in your your false self in your box by the age of five or two or eight. It just depends on who you're reading. Um, But a lot of people will say it's a little bit based on genetic disposition and a little bit environment. But then there's also this idea of choice of how of choosing to become healthy in your number and choosing to become aware of what is holding you back. So that is the choice part. I've heard that it's not a good idea to um, attempt to figure out someone's Enneagram number who is a child. Um, and can you talk more about why that is? You did kind of talk a little bit about how kind of how we come into our numbers, but you know, my wife and I both joke in talking about our son and what Enneagram number he is, but he's, he's six now. So can you talk, talk a little bit about that? That's a great question. Uh, some people say that you can start typing your son now. Some people say you could have typed him when he was a little itty bitty baby Um, And some people say that you should wait until they're a teenager or whatever. But another very important rule about the Enneagram is that you should not type another person. So what I love about the title of the book that both of us read, The Road Back to You, is that it implies that it's a pathway, that it is a journey that we all take toward understanding ourselves and knowing ourselves better. It is just human nature that we want to type everybody, figure out what they are, Um, But when we type another person, it is really easy then to put that person into a box and say, oh, you're an Enneagram too. This is how you are. You are a perfectionist. This is how you're going to be. But that will then rob the person of their own journey toward understanding themselves better. So you can guess what your son is as much as you want. um, And that might change over time. You might see certain things in your son and uh, that will stay pretty much the same and be like, oh, well, that's pretty characteristic of this one type or another. Um, But at the end of the day, we don't get to tell your son what number he is. It is his journey when he wants to engage with the Enneagram, if he ever does, to figure that out for himself. And uh, we get to just support him and and really anybody on their own journey toward uh, self-discovery and self-awareness and growth. And then now that has taken all the responsibility off of you to figure out what your son is. (laughs) Right. It's still a fun game though. Yes. I thank you before because he's so dramatic. Or or maybe he's an eight because he likes to argue. I love that. It is. But just as I would encourage you just to keep it amongst yourselves and not tell him what you think he is. Right. Um, but I mean, we all do it. We are all totally guilty of typing another person. Um, but if you do that, don't treat them specifically as they are that number, um, so that they don't, uh, get robbed of the journey of figuring out what they are on their own. But again, I'm the first one to say I'm super guilty of it. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to talk through um, a little bit about each number, and we're first going to drill down to taking the nine numbers down to three specific types within those, and then we're going to go into all nine numbers. Um, and uh, as you listen, pay attention to uh, what you connect with about each number or each of these triads that we're going to talk about first. Um, not everything about your type will apply to you just because we tend to fluctuate between healthy to average and unhealthy. And we kind of bounce up and down that ladder of health, uh, depending on our circumstance and our season of life and, um, and all of that. So not everything, just like any other personality test, not everything that you hear about a type will apply to you, but there will be something within you that you start to really connect with one of the types or maybe two of the types, um, which is a very, um, in the, in the Enneagram world saying that you might connect with more than one type is considered heresy. So uh, take that lightly. If you love the Enneagram and I've just offended you, I encourage you to keep listening, but again, it's okay if not everything applies to you. Uh, but one thing that they do say about the Enneagram that again, going back to that idea that this is not a feel good personality assessment. They say that you will know your number when you read about it or listen about it and it feels icky. That is how you'll know which number you are because it's pointing out the, the uglier parts of you that you know are true, but that's good because that is that first step towards self-awareness because self-knowledge leads to self-awareness and self-awareness is how we enter into that path of transformation. So let's jump right into talking about the taking the, the all nine numbers and we're going to first kind of break them down into three triads. And these are called the intelligence centers. So of the nine numbers, um, eight, nine, and one are from the gut triad or the instinct triad. So people in the gut triad tend to take in information based on their instinct. Uh, people in the gut triad tend to have that body wisdom or that instinctual understanding, uh, that gut reaction of knowing when to make decisions. The next triad is called the feelings triad or the heart triad. And this is the twos, the threes, and the fours. They're the ones that uh, tend to be very in touch with their feelings and they, they take in information based on how it feels. And that is how they make their decisions. And that is how they discern. So the eights, nines, and ones go by gut instinct and body wisdom. The twos, threes, and fours go by how they feel. Some of the numbers are going to ignore their gut instinct or ignore their feelings, or in the next triad, the thinking triad, they're going to uh, completely ignore their thoughts, but we'll talk about that a little bit more. So the last triad is the five, the six, and the seven, and those are that's the thinking triad. These are the numbers that tend to take in information by logic and thinking, and they really like to use knowledge to help them feel safe. So... Uh, we have the gut triad. Those are the doers. Those are the ones that if they need to make a decision, they might go for a run or they go by their gut. The twos, the threes, and the fours, these are the feeling triads. They are very aware of their feeling and of their feelings. And when they talk, they'll say like, I feel da-da-da, or I feel like, et cetera, et cetera. And then the thinking triad, these are the ones that um, they can think and think and think and think. And again, knowledge helps them feel safe. 
you might often hear a five, six, or seven say, I think I feel, because they're actually thinking instead of feeling. You might already have an idea of which triad you're in, so let's just go through a type description of all nine numbers. We're going to start with the eight. When we talk about these numbers, I'm going to use the number instead of the the nickname for them because most Enneagram people do talk about the numbers, but the nickname can be helpful to help you remember what each of the numbers are. So I'll give you both of those. And depending on where you're reading, they'll have different names. But at the end of the day, if you start to memorize what each specific number is and not the nickname, then it'll all be the same. So let's start with the eights. These are the challengers and they are very commanding, intense, and confrontational. And they are motivated by a need to be strong and avoid feeling weak or vulnerable. Their compulsion, the thing that they want the most is to be in control. Their biggest fear is that they might be controlled by other people. So that is why they don't want to look weak or vulnerable because then they might give up control to another person. They're assertive, resourceful. They're very self-confident. They're confrontational. They are intense and passionate. A lot of people would describe the eight as larger than life. And the eight is the kind of person that when they say something, their words weigh a thousand pounds. So a lot of the time when an eight speaks, they are listened to and they're taken seriously. So again, eights, they're motivated to not be controlled. So they like to be in control. That helps them create their own sense of security so that they are not controlled by anyone. An eight tends to overdo everything. They tend to overeat, overdrink, overwork, overexercise. They just, they're doers and they tend to overdo it. All of this kind of boils down to these motivators of the eight. They want to be self-reliant. They want to prove their strength, resist weakness. They want to be important in their world. They want to dominate the environment because that helps them stay in control of their situation. As I'm talking about the eight, you uh, you might already have a, a few eights in your life that you can identify right away. And even though I know that you're not supposed to type anyone else, the eights are the ones that are the easiest to identify. And they would be the first one to stand up and say, I'm an eight. And uh, Because I know I'm an eight, I don't need to listen to any of the other numbers because I already know what I am. And the eight doesn't necessarily feel icky to the eight because they're in control and they're commanding and they tend to be very charismatic and they just have a lot more self-confidence than most of the other numbers. So the eights are, again, the easiest to identify on the Enneagram. But if you are an eight and just from that alone, you know that you're an eight, I encourage you to keep listening because it is important to learn about all the numbers, not only for your own self growth, but also for helping you have compassion for other numbers as well. As a nine, I would call the eights the arrogant SOB. (laughs) Um, That is not incorrect, actually, Chris. (laughs) Um, I know a lot of healthy eights that are not arrogant. They're very humble. They are uh, um, they are in command, but they don't need to uh, to throw the bricks, so to speak. But then I know a lot of unhealthy eights that are that exact arrogant SOB. <laughs> but uh, yes, but again, the idea of the Enneagram is to become aware of the ugly parts of you, that false self, the mask that you've been wearing, 
so that you can grow into a more healthy, more authentic uh, human being that that everybody likes <laughs> and not an arrogant SOB. So um, that would be more characteristic of a more unhealthy eight. So let's let's enter into that path of growth, eights. We love it. <laughs> we love you when you are healthy. Um, the next one are the nines. And there may or may not be someone on this podcast that knows the nine very well. So Chris, tell me, you can tell me if I am describing you well or if I'm way off. So the next one are the nines. And so they are in the gut triad, but they tend to be the most disconnected from their gut. Nines are pleasant, laid back and accommodating. They're motivated by a need to keep the peace, which goes back to what Chris was saying earlier about avoiding conflict. Nines, if there is any phrase that describes you, it is conflict avoider. Chris, how do you feel about that? Yes, that is, that is me to the T. Um, and it's not just conflict between me and another person. It's conflict between two other people that, and I have nothing to do with it. It just makes me, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. I just don't want it. I just, I want to run away. <laughs> um, yes, that sounds like a true nine, actually. Um, <laughs> um, so kind of from like the healthy side to the less healthy side um, of characteristics, a nine is accepting, supportive, complacent, and stubborn. If you look at the logo, so to speak, of the Enneagram, the nines are at the very top. And I like to think of the nines as being on top, not because they're the best number, even though I wish I was a nine. So in my mind, they might be the best number. Um, but nines are at the top because they can look down and they can see things from every perspective. So that is where they can be accepting and supportive because they can see all 86 sides to every story. But in their need to avoid conflict, they can be very complacent. And then at some point they can avoid conflict and be so complacent that they kind of reach the end of their rope. And it's all of a sudden there's going to be an anthill that was made into a mountain. And that is where they get very, very stubborn. Oh yeah. I, I, can, I can look back on my life and see where that has happened. And, and that's one of the things that you look back on and you think, Oh, that was, that was not my best self that I, you know, that showed up in that situation, but. One of the, the beauty of the Enneagram is it shows you where, where there's growth. Yes, exactly. Very well said. Very, very well said. So again, you said that avoiding conflict is not necessarily always between you and another person. It also includes two other people that you have nothing to do with. But I would say that there's also a need for inner harmony when it comes to nines. They don't like having their insides feel like there's tension. Do you feel that about yourself too, Chris? Yeah. Um, so you, this inner harmony means like even just a conflict within myself that just put like two warring sides of my own psyche. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have so many questions. I just want to like go into spiritual direction mode right now so bad, but I'm, we're going to keep <laughs> moving on. Um. <clears throat> So because of this need for harmony, either between other people or within yourself, nines can really struggle to make decisions and assert themselves. Um, they, and it's not because they 
don't want to rock the boat with their opinion, a lot of times nines just don't have an opinion. Sometimes they have an opinion, they don't want to share it to rock the boat, but they also might just not have an opinion. So there's no need to make a decision or assert themselves. Nines are the best at letting other people make decisions. Yeah. I, I, for, for example, when friends and I were trying to figure out where to go to dinner when we're in college, um, I mean, that's a perfect example. I might really like to go to the Chinese place, but you know, it's not worth the fight if other people want to go and get Mexican. So, so I push down my own desire in order to avoid conflict with other people. Again, avoiding conflict. That is the tagline for the peacemaker for the nine. Um, now this might feel a little bit icky for the nines out there, but it's often said that nines don't have a strong sense of identity. Part of that comes from not having opinions, but it also comes from this idea that nines can merge with other people. So instead of asserting themselves and saying, this is what I want, they just take on the opinions of other people. And then they tend to, in that way, merge and become like the people around them. My best friend is a nine and he's my favorite person in the whole wide world. And when we hang out, um, it's usually we'll go to dinner and we'll talk and we just like are really chill. We might go to a movie and, uh, and I am just like, oh, this this is how he and I are together. Like we, this is what we do. We're just really chill. And the first time that I went out with him and another one of our friends who's very extroverted, very loud, I saw a completely different side of my friend. All of a sudden it was, he was loud and he was making fun of people. And I was like, who is this person? And it's because, and I asked him, you know, who is the, who is the real you? And he just said, well, when I'm with this other person, you know, she brings out this funny, loud side of me. And when I'm with you, well, you're just my chill friend. Do you, do you see any of that with you and being a nine, Chris? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm trying to rem- hmm. I see that in me. You might not even realize that you do it because... It is just part of you to merge with other people. I, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, this, this sense of identity is, is the one thing that I have tried to um, work on this year. Um, before I came into this year, I felt like uh, God was telling me that uh, 2020 was going to be the year of finding my voice. And so that is, that's the identity issue here that um, in the past, I didn't really have a voice because I didn't, have an identity to speak. But now, I mean, 2020 came around and I said, okay, this is going to be the year of finding my voice. And by golly, I found my voice and it caused trouble. In matter of fact, it caused trouble in my church. And we ended up having to leave the church because of that, because I felt like I was exerting my own identity and other people didn't like it. And that caused conflict. And of course, that was a whole nother issue. Lots of, lots of stress over that. But this, um, you know, finding a sense of identity has, um, has been di- really difficult, but it's, it's what I had to do this year. And I, th- I feel like I'm doing better at it now than I, than I had a year ago now. That's great. That shows the beauty of the Enneagram of uh, doing the hard spiritual work and uh, 
learning who you are and who you can be the best version of yourself that you can be. The last one in the gut triad is the one, and those are called the perfectionists. And sometimes you might see them called the reformer. The ones are very ethical. They are dedicated and reliable. They're motivated by a desire to live the right way, improve the world and avoid fault and blame. So uh, the one question that the perfectionist asks is how can it be improved? They either want to improve themselves and other people processes. So what do I need to do to make this perfect, to reform it and to make it the right way to improve things so that there can be no fault and blame put on any part of this whatsoever. As you can imagine, ones have a very strong sense of right and wrong, and they have very high standards. They're very organized, they're practical, they're very critical, and they tend to be, hence the name, perfectionistic. One characteristic that you hear about the ones very often is that they have a strong inner critic. A lot of people have a a voice that kind of speaks to them to kind of say, you can do this better, or this isn't right, or good job here, or whatnot. Um, Sometimes it's like a committee where it's like a lot of different types of voices kind of help speak into your life. But what's very characteristic about the one is that they have one voice, and then it is only critical, and it's their strong inner critic. So uh, nothing is ever good enough. This was wrong. This was wrong. Um, This was not perfect. Therefore, you're a complete failure. So the ones have this very strong inner critic within themselves that is constantly being critical of every single thing. So in a lot of ways, the bar of how something can be improved is set so high that you can never reach the standard or the expectation of the one. Because if you do it this way, or even if the one is working on a project, they're going to go until the very last minute of that deadline because every single thing needs to be perfect. Um, They are motivated to want to be right because if they're wrong, then they're a failure and they weren't perfect. They strive higher and improve everything because the bar of perfectionism keeps getting higher and higher and higher. They want to be consistent with their ideals, whatever their ideals are, we should say, um, because they have such high expectations um, that if they are inconsistent, then that means they aren't perfect and then therefore they're a failure. Um, They want to justify themselves so that they can always be right. And then that idea of uh, avoiding fault and blame comes here because they are also motivated to be beyond criticism so they can't be condemned by anyone. Because if there's anything that is critical or that they get criticized for, that they're, let's be real, their inner critic probably already told them about, if they are condemned in any way, shape, or form, then they weren't perfect. And they just need to be perfect. It's more proof of what that inner critic said, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I have a friend, that's a one, and she was in on her own journey of self-discovery of finding her place and like her perfect job and whatnot. And she was called a jury duty. And it was so funny because she came away from jury duty, just like so in awe and just like loving this justice system that she actually went and got certified to be a paralegal because she loved this idea of right and wrong and black and white and the law and justice being a paralegal really fits well into that paradigm for her 
because it the law and justice helps people encourages people to live the right way and here's your standard with the law you either meet it or you don't and uh, as a one she can hold other people to that standard i imagine it would be very hard to be a one <laughs> for somebody like me who is okay with bending the rules every now and again you know i like being called a heretic i imagine it would be very hard to, for a one to be friends with me. Uh, even even as a nine, I I think rules are often merely suggestions, and you know, unless it's you know, unless it's going to get someone hurt or killed, of course, those rules are important. But yeah, other things are just whatever. I'll, I'll break the rule if it's if it if it helps me do what I need to do. A one would disagree with you completely. <laughs> Rules are there for a reason, Chris, right? Exactly. And I imagine that even listening to you saying that, a one would probably be sweating right now. So if you are sweating profusely, just listening to us talk about breaking the rules, you might be a one. <laughs> um, I know one that I think you, you well, actually you and I both know this one, but um, this person loves to use the phrase moving the ball down the field and, and like their, their constant, um, uh, you know, their, their goal is to make sure that things are progress is continually made and things are continually improved. And, and if, if, you know, that supposedly that ball is not being moved down the field, then that's the failure on their part. Chris, that is actually very true of ones. They tend to be very productive. Um, they might not be as, as fast at their productivity as other numbers, but they like to get things done because if they don't meet a deadline or if they don't have a, something perfect to hand over, then what is the word? Failure. Failure. Yes. Then that means that they have failed and that they are, they're wrong. And uh, then it all just can come crashing and burning from there. That is very characteristic of a one to be productive, but in the sense of a, uh, the motivation of being productive is so that they meet the deadlines perfectly and that they do the right thing and that they don't come to fault because they didn't follow through on what they said they would do. So that is the motivation of the one is to always be right and in the right. <laughs>